If you have your Bibles, open them with me to the book of Ruth, chapter 1. Ruth, chapter 1. This series is entitled, My New Normal, and it highlights landmark events in different people's lives that are so uh, pivotal that life after that event is different from life before. Uh, The first two weeks we dealt with uh, the economic crisis, financial stress. Today, losing a spouse. Ruth chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malan and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud, and they said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this... They wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Let's pray. Lord, your word is so powerful, so moving. And the stories of your people are so powerful and so moving because in your word and in the stories of your people, we see the presence of our God, 
our Lord Jesus Christ. Your spirit pervades the, even the traumatic experiences of every single one of your people. Lord, I pray that in this message you'd help us to understand just, just a small fraction of the dust that scratches the surface of one of those single events, the losing of a spouse. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I realize that there's a small number of people in this room who have lost a spouse. But I will tell you that everybody in this room will encounter someone who's lost a spouse. And as Christians, we will be charged by our Lord with the responsibility of reaching out and ministering to those who have experienced such a loss. When we think about losing a spouse, of course, we usually think about the death of a loved one. A person who goes through a divorce has similar feelings and emotions, but without a lot of the ministry from the Christian community. And I don't think we can forget those people when we think about losing a spouse. J.T. Joyner died on February the 12th of this year, 2010. As of right now, it has been exactly 176 days since he died. You can ask Billy. She's been counting them 176 very long days. JT was 89. He was a veteran of World War II where he served as a paratrooper in the Philippines for three, just over three years. He was employed by MARTA, drove a bus for them for 37 years. He had been a member of this church for over 30 years. And if he had lived till the 26th day of the next month, next month, September, he would have been married to Miss Billy for 68 years. I love, and you love, if you knew them, JT and Billy. Uh, About Eight, nine years ago, I stopped calling her Billy most of the time. I, I, I liked the name JT, and I wanted to get her a name that matched with JT. And she's, a, if you know her, of course, and you saw her, she's a cutie. She's about this tall, maybe this tall, not this tall. She's a real cutie, so I, I use the QT. So JT and QT, and that's the way I have uh, related to Billy the whole time I've been here at Palmetto. What a blessing JT and QT, JT and Billy Joyner have been to this church and to so many of us who have known them for a long, long time. This dear lady has taught me so much about life, especially uh, about dealing with the struggles that families experience. And for the past year, she has taught me so much about dealing with with grieving over losing someone so intimately close to you. And I want to share with you some of the things that uh, she has taught me. Four things in particular, there's a whole lot more than that, but there are four things in particular that I want to convey to you that, that QT, Billy Joyner, has taught me about grieving, how to handle the loss of someone. The first thing I want you to notice that that QT has taught me is that people grieve 
in different ways. People grieve in different ways. This is a little hard for us to accept. Uh, I don't know when we started doing this. Maybe we started it with Adam and Eve. But we, we, we each of us individually, we, we respond to certain circumstances in certain ways. And if we're not careful, we, w- we will expect that everybody else either does respond to those same circumstances in the same way, or they should respond to them in a certain way. And the reality is people do not react in the same ways. We don't grieve in the same ways. Some people uh, work through the grieving process much more slowly than do other people. Some people seem to bounce back, at least on the surface. They bounce back very quickly, but deep inside, the grief is still so raw that a scab hasn't even worked itself, worked itself up over the hurt. Other people, they, they, they grieve for a long time. And if we're not careful, we will cut short that grieving process by telling somebody they need, they need to get up and they need to quit grieving and they need to put it behind them and they need to move forward. There is a time when, when that is necessary, when we need to get up and we need to move. But for many of us, that process is a very slow process that we have to be allowed to work through. People work through grief in different ways. I was looking at this opening chapter of Ruth. Here you have three women. There's Naomi and there is Orpah and there is Ruth. And all three of these ladies lose their spouses before chapter one has ended. And as I look at the way these three women handled the aftermath of their loss, they each handled it in a different way. Naomi, after the loss of her husband and the two sons, she decided to leave Moab and go home. Because Naomi normally deals with her grief by running from it. If you remember, if you know anything about the book of Ruth, Naomi and her husband Elimelech were Jewish people from the area of Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, a word which means house of bread, there was a famine in the land. No bread. There was a recession And instead of staying there, they left Bethlehem, Judah, and they go to Moab. They left their crisis. Now, I'm not trying to find fault with them. I'm just simply saying that is the way that Naomi traditionally handled her grief and her crisis and her loss. She left Bethlehem, Judah when the crisis was there. When she lost her husband and her two sons in Moab, she immediately leaves and goes back to Bethlehem, Judah. Orpah handled her situation in a different way. With Orpah, she was willing to go back to Judah, even though she'd never been there before. She was willing to go with Naomi and accompany her to Bethlehem, Judah, if that's what was required of her. But her preference was to stay in Moab, where her family was and where she was familiar in familiar territory. Some people handle grief by leaving the crisis. Others handle grief by staying where the crisis developed because it's familiar and it's comfortable. And there's nothing wrong with that either, necessarily. With Ruth, Ruth handled her grief in a different way from Naomi and Orpah. With Ruth, uh, she wanted to be with Naomi wherever she went, wherever that led, whatever that meant for her life. She was going to cling to Naomi because she needed the companionship of someone that she greatly respected. And there was nobody 
that Ruth respected more highly than Naomi. People grieve in different ways. Kate Chopin was a short story writer around 1900, the end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s. Uh, She lived in the area of Louisiana, Mississippi. She wrote a very brief short story one time called The Story of an Hour. It's about uh, a lady who gets the news, a lady with a heart condition who gets the news that her husband, Brentley, has been involved in a railroad accident. Her husband, Brentley, worked for the railroad, and she gets the news that he's been involved in an accident and several people were killed, and his name was on the top of the list of those killed. And her sister and another friend, a man, came to the house to announce to Brentley's wife, Mrs. Mallard, that her husband was killed, and so they try to break the news to her with hints, because they are literally afraid that with her heart condition, she will go right into cardiac arrest. And so finally they come out and tell her that her husband is dead, and she falls out on the floor in, in uh, uh, great grief, crying out with cries and, and, and immediately uh, uh, tears. Finally, they calm her down and they take her up, upstairs to her bedroom and she insists on being left alone there and she continues to cry. And finally, her, her outrageous, continuous crying gives way to sobs. You know, kind of like a child does when, when he or she has cried for a good while and cried themselves out and then finally gets to... <laughs> you see, I've done this before. Now she's sitting there getting the final sobs out. She's looking at a window that's open from her bedroom and the sky is blue. She sees the tops of trees swaying in the wind. She sees sparrows flying. And she gets a scent of flowers just outside the window. And all of a sudden, unexpectedly and without desiring it, her emotions go from The grief, the extensive grief that she has felt to a sense of freedom. And it sways back and forth from the grief to the freedom to the grief to the freedom until finally, as she's up there in her room, she starts feeling more relief and freedom than she does grief, even though the story even says that her husband was only showed love to her and kindness to her, never, never abusive in any way. And finally, her sister bangs on the door and says, says, you've got to come out. You're going to make yourself ill. And Ms. Mallard says, I'm not going to make myself ill. She says, come out. And finally, they convince her to come out of the room. She's coming down the steps beside her sister. The man who had accompanied her sister was down at the foot of the steps when A latch turned, and the front door, which had been locked, became unlatched and open, and there stood Brentley Mallard. In reality, he had been nowhere near the railroad accident. And Kate Chopin ends that short story by saying that the doctors said that Ms. Mallard died from a heart disease from a heart filled with joy. 
People deal with grief differently. Now, with Billy Joyner, she has grieved every single one of those 176 days. She has taught me that people grieve in different ways, and we have to allow them to do so. The second thing that Billy QT has taught me is that faith is a must when grieving the loss of a loved one. Faith is a must. Listen, while you and I are alive, make sure that you are sure about your relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't let your loved ones bury you without knowing where you stand with God. Don't put them through that. And make sure that you know. You see, whenever you and I have a loved one who dies, and we know that that loved one is a person who is saved, has had a relationship with Christ, we know, even though we're, we're overwhelmed with sadness and grief fills up our hearts, still there is, there is a place in our hearts called hope that the Christian life gives us, that Jesus Christ gives us, and we know That even though we're sad now, we know that our loved one is alive and well, more alive and well than he or she has ever been in their lifetime. And we also know not only that they are alive and well, but we, if we have a relationship with Christ, will be with them one day. Faith is a must every day. Billy Joyner gets up and many times a day she walks from her bedroom through her living room into the kitchen. And in the kitchen, beside the back door, there is a refrigerator. And all along the side and the front of that refrigerator are newspaper clippings and photographs of JT. Some of them of JT and Billy, some of them of just JT. The photographs cover... Uh, uh, several years of their lives, you can see pictures of when JT was healthy and, and, and strong as an ox and could outwork any man regardless of age on the mission trip, all the way to pictures when he was within the last year of his life suffering with Alzheimer's and weakness. And every day, Billy Joyner goes by that refrigerator and she stops and she looks, focuses in on one of those pictures. And she tells JT, I love you. And I miss you so much. And God, take care of my JT. She doesn't talk to him as though he's non-existent. She talks to him with the certainty of knowing that he is alive and well. Faith in Christ is a must for those who suffer the loss of a loved one. The third thing I've learned from QT is that friends are a must when grieving the loss of of a loved one. Friends are a must. One of the reasons why, if you noticed in in the first chapter of Ruth, their story, after uh, Naomi's husband and then Naomi's two sons died, all three of the girls, Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah, they set out on their way to back to Bethlehem. I mean, a lot of people uh, skim through the story and think that Ruth and Orpah never left their hometown of Moab. Actually, they did. They were on their way. They needed each other. They were a close-knit trio of girls. And it wasn't until they were well on their way to to Bethlehem, Judah, that they stopped and Naomi says, girls, this is ridiculous. You've got to go back home. You've got to go back home. This is where you live. This is where you'll find another husband. This is where you need to stay. They were close-knit. 
And then, even then, though Orpah did go on back home, and there was nothing wrong with Orpah doing that, Ruth, she clung to Naomi. Why? Because Ruth needed Naomi, and Naomi needed Ruth. But Naomi also needed her friends who were back in Bethlehem. If you read through the rest of that chapter, you'll find that when she got back to Bethlehem, her friends, even though it had been probably decades since she had been back to Bethlehem, they recognized her. What that must have done to her that her friends recognized her during her time of grief. And they said, they said, this is Naomi. Aren't you Naomi? And she says, don't even call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which is Hebrew for bitter. For my life has turned bitter. God has made my life bitter. I've lost my husband. I've lost my sons. I've lost everything that I've had that meant so much to me. But there she had Naomi and there she had her friends. Some of you already know this. Billy Joyner emails me. She start, I, don't know, I don't remember exactly when she started emailing me. She used to have an email address that was, that was called Boggs Joyner, because Boggs is her maiden name. It was Boggs Joyner at AOL.com. And for years, she emailed me from Boggs Joyner. And then, when she started having grandchildren and great-grandchildren, she changed her email address from Boggs Joyner to Great Granny J at AOL. <laughs> Somewhere along the way, I started saving her emails. The first saved email that I have from Billy Joyner was on January the 23rd, 2005. January the 23rd, 2005. That's when I started. That's not when she started emailing me. That's when I started saving her emails. Now, I did not save my emails back to her, only hers. And of the ones she sent to me since then, I have saved 80% of them. I tell her, I said, QT, I only save 80% of your emails because 20% of them aren't worth saving. I'm not going to keep those. But I've kept 80% of them. Last night, I went back into my folder of, of uh, I still call it a Boggs Joiner folder because that's what I initially called it after her old email address. As of last night, I have saved 1,296 emails since January of 2005 from Billy Joyner. And that's 80% of them. And that doesn't count the ones I've sent back to her. That means that since the beginning of 2005, she and I have corresponded over 3,000 times. And there were emails from 2000 to 2005 too. Not as many as there were since 2005. But I would guess that she and I have corresponded over 5,000 times. If I were to take those emails and compile them in a book, her children would cherish them forever. In those emails, she, she calls me a friend, but in reality, she's been the friend to me. She has taught me how to be a friend. Some people get mad when a crisis has occurred and for some reason nobody touches it, nobody contacts them. Here's the way Billy Joyner has worked. She was in a crisis and she initiates the contact that you make with her. Do you hear that? She initiates, and I'm not saying that's the way it ought to be or the way it should have to be, but she initiates the contact that, that, that forces you to respond and makes you want to respond. She is 
She's a friend. I can't imagine. I didn't go back and count the number of emails that she and I have shared since or just over the past 175 days. But I can just tell you that those emails have meant a lot to me, and I hope they've meant a lot to her. In that first email that I saved, can I just share with you what she says at the end of that first email on January the 23rd, 2005? And this was the first one I've saved. And the last of it, she said, quote, she said, you know, and maybe, maybe this is why I saved it. It was an email where she told me about her brother, Lou, and she asked me about some folks who had taken their lives. It was a long email. At the end of it, she said this. She said, you know, I told you that I felt God had a reason to send you to Palmetto. She said, I've never had a pastor that I felt I could talk with, let alone email some of the things that I do to you. I'm so glad that God sent you to our church. That was the last thing she said to me in the first email that I saved from her. You can see how she's been a whole lot more of a blessing to me, I believe, than I have to her. You just can't imagine. Listen, listen, on that little, on that little comment she made there, I went, I went three years without, without tanking up again. I Really, I did. She taught me that friends are a must when grieving the loss of a loved one. And I'm not the only one who's reached out to her. Many of you, Judy Baird, uh, Missy, uh, Virginia, David Grubbs, Jerry Watson. I mean, I I could go on and on the number of people who call her, go by and visit her, send her cards. Many of you, Wanda Smith, I know, sent a card to her as, as many of you did and have. Friends are a must when grieving. The final thing that she's taught me that I want to share with you is that reaching out to comfort others is an important part of the grieving process. When you and I grieve, it is important at some point in that grieving process, very therapeutic, for us to identify people who are also grieving, perhaps with similar situations, and reach out to them. Now, by saying that, I want you to understand it doesn't, it, I don't care what you've experienced. Nobody knows exactly what somebody else is feeling. Nobody. And so uh, if I come to, for instance, if I come to you in your time of grief and I say, oh, I know, I understand exactly how you feel. That is so wrong on so many different levels. What I ought to say is nothing <laughs> and just come up and say, look, I know you're hurting I've had a similar circumstance, but I don't know how you feel, but I just want to be here with you. That's really a better way, I think. I'm just telling you my heart. But reaching out to others is very important. Now, uh, as, as many of you know, JT suffered with Alzheimer's disease. Billy had been noticing his memory lapsing about five and a half years before he died in January. 
And as time went on, as she said in the video, there were she got to where uh, he got to where he couldn't remember some of his friends names. And then uh, in the last year and a half, two years, he got to where when his children would come, he couldn't remember their names. And he'd have to ask Billy. Now, what was who is she now and who is he? And then finally, right there at the very last, the most heartbreaking thing you could see it in her video. She could barely get this out. He, He got to the point where he couldn't remember her. And she'd been telling me in emails for for three, four years, she said, the one thing that I dread the most is if there comes a time when he won't remember me. She said, we've been married over 60 years. So he had Alzheimer's as well as then dying. But I want you to know something. Billy regularly reaches out. Some of you remember Charlie and Hilda Pace, who were members of this church back in the early, uh, within five to ten years ago. Uh, they have since, they, they, they moved their address to, uh, over to Noonan, and because of their health, they had to transfer their membership to Heatherwood because it was closer to them. Very vital members of our church when they were here. Great, great people. Charlie is in Alzheimer's, and, and it's so bad that he's, he's been transferred to Benton Place, which is a, a, a nursing center specifically for Alzheimer's patients. And, and uh, Hilda has gone through, I mean, pure hell with this thing, as well as Charlie has. So what does Billy Joyner do in her group? She calls Hilda on a regular basis, sends her notes on a regular basis. And Hilda's not the only one. She regularly reaches out to Clyde and Etta Taylor. Clyde Taylor. In his 90s, we're talking about a Hall of Famer here, his wife, Etta. When I came here, they used to sit right there where Jack Miller, Jack and Raquel are. They'd sit right there in the traditional service. And always delightful, always wonderful to be around. Those of you who know Mr. Clyde, he is a born comedian. His mind's still sharp in his 90s. A simplify, proud-to-be-a-marine type person. Miss Etta is down at Southland Nursing Center in Peachtree City, and she has forgotten how to speak. Her Alzheimer's is so bad. On a rare occasion, she will come out with a yes or a, a what or perhaps an I love you too. And Mr. Clyde has been there every single day. If he's not in church this morning, the reason he won't be here is because he's at Southland Center beside her bed, looking in her eyes, thinking what is it that her eyes are trying to say that she has lost the ability to remember. And Billy Joyner talks with him several times, several times a week. She's reached out to many of you without calling names. And you know who you are that she's reached out to you. Some of you have family members who, who are having memory problems. Some of you uh, are, are spouses who have lost loved ones and she's reached out to you just as you have to her. Listen, reaching out and comforting other people who are grieving is a very vital and healing part of the grieving process. Paul said that to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in their troubles. Such a very important part. I want to close this message by reading a portion, an excerpt of an email that Billy sent to me on September the 26th, 2009. It was on the day of their 67th anniversary. 
quote. Do you know it was 67 years ago today? 1942. I went to Manchester, Georgia to meet JT. And he was to come to Manchester, Georgia so we could get married. We had tried to work it out other ways to accomplish our goal, but he could not get leave to come home from the military. He couldn't come home either to get a marriage license or to get married. My sister Kitty and her husband and family lived in Manchester, Georgia, and she somehow got our license for us and arranged for her pastor to perform the ceremony. It was raining like it is right now. Ten o'clock came and no JT. You can imagine how I was feeling. But about 1030, he showed up soaking wet after traveling through a sewer and going AWOL from the military to be married to his sweetheart. He hitched a ride with some man going in the direction of Manchester. And after hearing JT's story about going to be married, the man went out of his way to take him on to Manchester. The preacher had already gone to bed. But he got up, got dressed, and performed the ceremony, making us man and wife to death do us part. We're getting there. She goes on and says, Don't you believe, as I do, that God had a plan for our lives? Well, QT, yes, I do. Yes, I do. What a great lady. A lady who teaches me how to grieve, and so much about the way people grieve. So thankful for you being here today. We're going to have our invitation. I want to ask you, are you ready? Are you ready to die? I'm not talking about are you wanting to go today. I'm talking about are you ready in case you do die? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you invited him into your heart? If not, this is an ideal time to do it. If you're saved, are you a member of a church? One of the things that Billy Joyner tells me over and over again is how grateful she is for the church family that she has here at PBC. You want to be a part of that family? This is an ideal time to do so. Maybe there's some other concern on your heart that you need to take to the altar. You don't have to tell me about it if you don't want to. Or you can if you want to. But if, the, if you want to come to the altar... The altar is open for you. Let's stand as we pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, with grateful hearts, knowing that you're the God of all comfort, knowing that you're the God who aches when we ache. You feel the pain of our pain, and you promise to never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, in this invitation, I pray that you'd change lives. Also, Lord, I pray that we would go away from here when we go with hopefully a better understanding because of your spirit as to how to help people when they grieve and how to grieve when we lose someone we love. Thank you for J.T. Joyner.
Thank you for QT. And thank you for all those who have experienced the loss of a dear, dear family member. Our lives are changed for the better because of having known them. Now work in this time of invitation in Jesus' name. Amen.